So, Christian, this is, what, your second call? Second call. Yes, good. Okay. And um, I want to congratulate you for uh, beginning to get started, that you're seeing these hindrances, uh, and you're seeing that they occur frequently. And that's, that's good. Uh, but then you use the term about uh, trying your best. And I thought that we would look at that for just a little bit. Um, that we, uh, we have built into Western society, we have the concept that is different than the Mediterranean and the Asian society. Uh, which is a society based upon honor. It's based upon, in Thailand, they talk about face or uh, saving face and whatnot like that. But the Western society, because of Christianity, uh, is based basically on guilt, not honor. And so the guilt has it that if I feel guilty enough, if I feel sorry already, then I'll get forgiveness. Okay, so uh, in one culture, the face saving is, is that you try to do something to make yourself look good. Where in the West, it has to do with, well, we already understand that we failed. Now we have to grovel in the right way to get forgiveness or to get um, mercy, to get grace, to get something because we've already expected failure in the beginning, that we're already in the position of being a loser. Uh, Christianity is based upon this, and in uh, many ways that they talk about it, um, is the idea of original sin, that you were born already broken. That you didn't, weren't born as a potential, you were already born as a uh, no longer a potential, you're already a failure. And every little child buys that very easily because every child, when we are born, we are born as a victim. We can't use our own hands. We can't feed ourselves. We can't uh, change our diapers. We can't uh, walk out any place we want to go. When, we, when we're learning to walk, we have to have somebody's hand to hold us to keep us from falling down and all kinds of other stuff. So we uh, start off with the furniture too big for us. Everybody starts off as a victim. And the thing of it is, is that with the, site, with the system that we are taught, we remain that victim. We remain, in a way, a child for the rest of our lives, and we never grow up to be a fully adult with, with full responsibilities of an adult. We always keep uh, staying at that level of a child, trying to suck up to some bigger reality, some religious figure or some religious God or something like that for the mercy to make up for the fact that we've already failed. And so that's when we use language like that. Uh, uh, when we say, uh, uh, trying my best. Especially the word trying, because trying already has the word failure built right into it. That we either try it and fail, or we do it. 
And so um, uh, in that regard, uh, when I was first with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, one of the early conversations that I had with him, we were talking about meditation and I brought up the point about if it first succeeds, try, try again, because that was the culture that I was raised in. If, have you ever heard of that phrase? If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa laughed at me uh, and then says, if at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. And that phrase stayed with me because that's the real essence of the entire teaching of the Buddha. He gave it to me that one line. Look at what you're doing. If you're not succeeding, look at what you're doing. And that's the whole quality that we are doing here is looking at these hindrances, seeing them for what they are, and then we have a choice about it. But if we have the mentality of at first you don't succeed, try, try again, you're already in the victim's position. You didn't succeed, and now we're trying, we're working at it, but we're expecting to fail again. That's why we use the word try, try. How many tries do we have to put in there? Maybe if at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try. Because that's all you're going to be doing. And a lot of people practice that way with meditation. So I want to make sure that you start right off from the very beginning, the get-go, with getting some success rather than trying your best. And in fact, what I would prefer in the way that I live my life, I don't try my best at anything. I have never given best. I don't even know what my best is. I have failed many times, but I wouldn't say that I gave it my best. If I had given it my best, I probably would have succeeded anyway. Right? So I don't try my best. I'm too busy having fun succeeding at, let us say, uh, not going at blank speed, that I'm just one ahead, uh, uh, all ahead one-third. And that's the way to live our lives. Take it easy rather than trying our best. And in our society, we've been taught to try our best, and I'm inviting you to catch on to that and recognize you don't have to try anymore. You don't have to put up your best anymore and still expect to fail. But now you can begin to practice correctly and get best results from it immediately. But that's how Vic, uh, the Buddha described um, Anapanasati. He says that it's a great fruit, great benefit. But that's the way to look at Anapanasati is, and that the various parts of it have to do then. It's not a complicated practice. It just seems complicated when you're talking about it. But in fact, many of the things that I teach takes me longer to express the teaching of it than it does to take the doing of it. Especially with thoughts, because thoughts are going pretty fast. And language is pretty slow compared to how fast the mind is. The Buddha said one time that the mind is fast, O monks. It is so fast that he doesn't even have an analogy for how fast the mind is. And I'll give you an example of that. 
Have you ever seen a picture of uh, the planet Venus? You know what the, the planet Venus looks like? How about Saturn? You know what Saturn looks like? It's rings, right? You know what the moon looks like, right? Okay. So guess what? You have in your mind gone from Venus to Saturn to the moon much faster than the speed of light. <laughs> That's how fast the mind is. It's much faster for great distances than the speed of light. But at close distances, it still does take a bit that we normally have a mind moment that lasts in the vicinity of about a, uh, a tenth of a second. And so let us say that every tenth of a second is a brand new moment for you. And we have about 10 mind moments a second. Now that's relative. Some of us are slower, some of us are faster, and some of us are variable in that range. Sometimes I feel like a nut, sometimes I'm not. You know, that's just how it is. Sometimes we're slow, sometimes we're fast. But on average, we can think of it as about 10 um, thought moments a second which is considerably different than discursive thought because when we're thinking and mulling stuff over, we're actually in a discursive kind of thinking, using language and words and pictures and images like that. But sometimes things happen really, really fast. That would be like an attitude or an inclination. That we, in fact, you could say that, um, that the thoughts of a loser will be different than the thoughts of a winner, even if they're thinking about the same thing. That if we are a victim, we have different thoughts than we do when we're a winner. Well, that's a very interesting point then. That means that, the, that this um, attitude is the forerunner to the thoughts. And that's the, that forerunner is what we're going to start looking at and paying attention to through the fog of the thoughts, is to recognize where did this thought come from? What was my original intention? Okay, so the way that the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Noble Method is that sati, to wake up and remember to look, and then the investigating, the looking, is then followed by right effort to come out of that. But then after we get good at that, we can do it over and over and over again that we can change the mind. We can recognize that this thought is unwholesome, that this is a hindrance, and we can change it. By being able to change that hindrance in that moment, that gives us a spark of joy. It gives us a spark of success. Aha, I can change my mind. That's the important thing. Aha, I can change the mind because we just did it and we know that we could do it. Never mind how many times I failed at it, that's not the issue. The fact is, right here, right now, we were successful at doing that. That's what we're wanting to capitalize on is that, aha, I can do it. Because that's the fourth ingredient, the Sama Santapa, that runs in the Eightfold Noble Method. Those three things, right sati, right uh, uh, investigation, and right effort, then add that fourth ingredient, right attitude. I can do this.
I don't have to try my best anymore. This is actually easy to do. That's the attitude that we want, the attitude that this is easy. Not that I try my best, okay? But we have been taught to try our best, even though the fact that uh, the mind is, let us say, flooded on a regular basis with one unwholesome thought after another, unwholesome thought after one hindrance after another, after another, after another. And there they are, ignorantly passing through the mind. And now we pick up one and we got it. Aha, I see you. We can throw that thought out, right? And then more of the unwholesome thoughts will be there. And then we wake up, aha, I see you, I got one. And that's the way we're not looking at how many times we fail. We're looking at how many times we succeed. And getting that going so that we begin to feel like I can do this that I can eventually get a handle on my mind because I can get a handle on one thought at a time occasionally. I can occasionally see that thought. I can take it up and change it. That we're not looking for 100% uh, perfection. We're looking for, in fact, satisfaction. And you'd be satisfied with just finding one thought that is unsatisfying and change that thought from an unsatisfying thought a hindrance into a satisfying thought. That's the trick is to learn that skill. Can we actually gain the skill of that right effort to change the thought from an unwholesome thought into a wholesome thought? And then we congratulate ourselves for having been able to change that one thought from an unwholesome thought a wholesome thought. I, I can do it. Yeah, see what you mean. Okay. So this is the practice now of the Eightfold Noble Path leading into the practice of Anapanasati, that the Buddha teaches Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the Sambhojana. Now, the Sambhojana is actually the seven factors of enlightenment. But the seven factors of enlightenment, when they are fulfilled, is nothing but the eightfold noble path with the skills that needed to be developed. So as we develop the skills of the eightfold noble path through Anapanasati practice, we are now developing the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening. Okay, and along the way, we're going to be using the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness within Anapanasati, to accomplish these seven factors of enlightenment. But now the seven factors of enlightenment, you say, well, what are those? The answer to that is, well, we've already been talking about them in the sense of skills to be developed. So the first item on the list of the Sambhojana is unremitting. Sati. In other words, we keep remembering and keep remembering and keep remembering to grab that thought, throw it out, and change it. We keep remembering to keep coming back to the here now. So let us say that the, the habit of the human mind by the time one is an adult is the habit of spending almost all of our time 
in the mental sense store. Of the six sense stores, we have the eyes, the ears, the nose, the touch of the skin, uh, <clears throat> the taste. Those are the five. But we also spend most of our time in that sixth sense of the mind. But the sixth sense of the mind is nothing but a reflection of these other five things. In other words, we do not have thoughts or imaginations that do not have to do with these five senses. Even if you're making up a brand new piece of art, it's going to be visual. You use your eyes. Other senses that we don't use would be like odors. Dogs live in an odor world. They smell a lot, but I watch a puppy finding food, and they don't look very much. They sniff around to find the food. And when we cook something in the kitchen, the dogs out on the porch, they know all about it. They don't see through the walls. Humans are not so good with our olfactory. So that's one example. In that sense, you do not have a lot of thoughts about how things smell. Only a very, very few people actually train that. One would be wine tasters. In fact, I can't think of anybody else that actually trains their mind, uh, their sense organ uh, to investigate odors. But then that wine taster would be capable of actually having dreams about how wine tastes. Okay, why? Because he's got that olfactory system going. In fact, you know that wine tasters, the first thing they do is they get the wine swirling in the glass to get it uh, evaporating so that then then smell it. Right. And in fact, almost all of wine tasting is about smelling. Now, I bring that up simply because for humans, mostly that uh, olfactory sense is the weakest. And therefore, it's the one that we don't spend much time thought moments with what we do with eyes. We see a lot, therefore a lot of our thought process will be visual images. We hear a lot and we have language that we hear with and so therefore we think in language a lot. But we don't think in all factory. Only a chef will think about the taste of food. Most of us, when we think of food, we think of the image of the food because we're so visually oriented. <laughs> Dogs, when they have sex on their mind, they have it through the senses of the smell. What a dog looks like is not interesting to them. What the dog smells like, that's interesting to them. With humans, we don't even have a chance to smell that pretty girl. She's at a distance. We've already judged her as beautiful or not with our eyes. And so most of the sexuality is going to be visual. Right? So this whole point about the mind and the sense doors is, is to recognize that what we're actually going to be practicing is spending less time in this mental sense door and more time in the actual sense doors because that's how we learn to be here now we learn to be here now by coming out of the mental sensing into the actual sensing be able to see with the eyes to look or a better word to use would be to gaze 
to just open the eyes to whatever's there, to open the ears to whatever's there, to open the body and begin to experience. And in fact, I talked about olfactory. Humans are also quite deficient in sensory experience of the body. And in a way, the body is a huge, enormous antenna that is picking up sounds and frequencies and all kinds of things that we don't pay any attention to at all because we're mostly mentally oriented and secondarily, mostly visually oriented. And so the practice of Anapanasati is the practice of getting them back in touch with and experiencing the body in the here now to remember to pay attention to the body. And so this is the, um, uh, the beginning uh, that we're adding the Satipatthana because we have the body, we have the feelings, we have the, the mind states, and then we have the mind objects. We're going to work with the mind objects in the sense of throwing the hindrances out and putting correct um, uh, wholesome thoughts in the mind, including the Dhamma itself. Oh, I see an island. You have uh, changed your visual. Yeah, something is wrong here. I was, I lost, I lost your image. So I was trying to get I it see, back on. I see your mouse moving. There you go. Now we're back. Okay. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> so uh, this Satipatthana is actually the Buddha's understanding of the four elements of reality. In the old days, in ancient Greece, in ancient India, and in ancient China, they all understood the four elements of solid, liquid, gas, and fire. Earth, wind, air, and fire. Those are the four primary elements, and the Buddha used those elements for the human body. In other words, all of the old meditations before the time of the Buddha were all external meditations paying attention to the outside world. And the Buddha is taking that outside world and bringing it on the inside into the, the solidness of the body, the fluidity of the feelings, the fire of the mind, our consciousness, and the smoke that this mind creates. Okay, so those are the four elements, and those are the, that's the foundation of Anapanasati. Anapanasati is based upon these four elements, the Satipatthana. In fact, there's a sutta by the name of the Satipatthana Sutta. In fact, there's two of them, the Maha Satipatthana Sutta also, and the Dinganakaya. So, this Satipatthana, we practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment of that, and we feel we practice Anapanasati also for the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment. Now, there are 16 stages or 16 steps of Anapanasati, and that's what makes everybody so confused. Oh my goodness, there's 16 of these darn things? <laughs> I can barely get a handle on one of them. But when we recognize, no, actually, uh, these 16 are just four items for each of 
the four elements. Okay, and you could also say there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you understand the beginning, the middle, and the end of each one of these, then we can see, oh, well, this is how we practice. And we don't take one of the Satipatthana, one element more important than the other, but because they're normally referred to as body, feelings, mind, and mind's objects, we normally think of those things in that order, but that's not necessarily the order of practice. The order of practice is the order according to both the Sambhojana, the seven factors of awakening, and the Eightfold Noble Path. That's the order that we practice it. So the first thing that we do is we wake up. We can't do anything until we wake up. An example of that would be, um, doesn't matter what skill it is, let us say in martial arts, the old grandmaster knows just the right technique to, to get this particular nemesis that's in this movie, right? But just when he needs to remember that technique the most, he forgets that he uses something else and then he loses. Okay. So this is what we mean by remembering. You have to remember the right thing at the right time. If you don't remember, then it doesn't matter what skills you have. Right? right? So, sati comes first. Now, the Buddha also talks about that right view comes first. And in a way, it does. Right view comes first in the sense that you would not even practice sati if you didn't have the view that it would be valuable, useful, and wholesome. But once we do, in the moment, the first thing that happens is sati, to wake up and do that investigation. And when we do that investigation, then we take the right effort to change it from an unwholesome to a wholesome. So in the way that we would practice then, we would start with the mind in the sense of to wake up the mind and to look at what you're doing. Look at what mind state you're in. Look at the contents of the mind. That's step nine of Anapanasati, right there. Step nine of Anapanasati is where we start. Step nine, to wake up and to take a look. The next thing that we do in, is step 10 of Anapanasati, which is gladdening the mind, which is one's right effort to gladden the mind or to remove the hindrances out of the mind and to put a wholesome thought in. And one keeps taking that effort, and that effort is a skill to be developed. In the beginning, it may take a lot of effort hmm. because we don't have the skill. A guy walks into the gym. And a lot of people think that when they walk into the Buddha gym, that they're going to go immediately over to the big, heavy dumbbells and start uh, curling 200 kilos. <laughs> but nobody starts that way. We start with the simple things because we don't have the skills yet. But what do we do then? Repetition. Repetition. Over and over. We take that dumbbell that only weighs one kilo and we start pumping pumping and repetitions over and over and over again. So this is what we're beginning to practice now is this idea of repetition. And that's important when we add the next ingredient 
after we've gladdened the mind, now we're going to start paying attention to the breathing. Now, when I say paying attention to the breathing, that's not just um, aware of the breathing, that the way that many of the meditation systems are taught is, is that, oh, you don't control the breath, you just watch it naturally. But that's not how we practice at all. Uh, the example that I would use with that is, is that imagine that you were watching someone else play a card game or a video game and that some noise happened in the room. The likelihood of you watching someone else play the game, you're going to get distracted first. The guy who's actually playing the game is going to continue playing the game. He's not going to be so easily distracted. Does that make sense? Okay. What we're actually pointing to is that we have to actually put some skin in the game. We actually have to control the mind to control the breathing. That this is an issue of control. Why? Because the victim is the one who is out of control. If we don't practice control, we're going to remain out of control and we're going to remain a victim. So we have to start taking control of our practice. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to mindfully, with sati, breathe in long. Now, in order to remember to breathe in long, we're using the mind and we're intending with the mind to tell the breathing to breathe in long. So, in other words, we're controlling both the mind and the body at the same time. And so control is the, the name of the game here. But mind will be taking a long breath in and mind will be taking a long breath out. And they use the word mindfully knowing that that's what's translated in the English versions of the sutras. But the right word is, is sati, to remember to take a long deep breath, to remember to take a long deep out breath. Now I'm doing this with my hands to point out that this mindfulness can be just a mind moment, just, just a click. But a breath will last two, three, four, five, ten seconds. So that doesn't mean that we have to watch that breath all the way through it. We're just going to mindfully make sure that this is a long, deep breath and mindfully make sure that this is a long, deep out breath and then leave the rest of the time for other things to be done, like actually experiencing how good it feels to take that breath or to the mind moment of congratulating yourself. Oh, I did remember to take a long, deep breath. We can also add the other senses in the sense of, oh, it feels cool. We can begin to pay attention now, not to just the breathing, but to the body itself, which is step three of Anapanasati. This is what the Goenka method is based upon. That scanning that they do is to wake up the body. We're going to be doing that with our long, deep breathing and also beginning to pay attention to what the body is doing. Where are the pressures? Do you have pressure under each of the feet that are on the floor? Do you have pressure on the butt? How about on the back? Do you feel the chair? As you're breathing in, can you feel the touch of the cloth as the rising of the breath and the falling of the breath? In other words, we're really beginning to pay attention to the body as we're actually controlling the body. And beginning to watch it and to feel good about it. This is the Anapanasati method of the Buddha. To actually experience the body. 
and we're we're kind of going in a particular direction with this because step four of Anapanasati is to relax the body. So we're actually going to be paying attention to the body to find out where the tensions are so that we can breathe them out and get the body completely relaxed. But in fact, in some suttas, not all of them, some of the suttas have five elements of the first jhana. And some of them have six. <clears throat> the ones that have six add an additional one, and that is the relaxation of the body. So we can actually say that when we're building the jhana factors and collecting them together, one of the items on that list is going to be the body is relaxed. How did we get it relaxed? We investigated the body. How did we investigate the body? We started with the breathing. And we're working through the body to get it relaxed. Okay, so these are some of the mind. Guess what? While we're paying attention to the body and relaxing the body, where's the hindrance now? <laughs> no hindrances. We're paying attention to it. So we're actually guiding the mind, giving it a job to do. Rather than just letting it wander around, we're going to put it to a purpose. Mm -hmm. And the purpose sense. is to investigate the body, to investigate the mental states. What kind of mental state am I in? Am I in the victim's position? Am I in the winner's position? Mm -hmm. Is the mind dull? Is it sharp? Is it fast? Is it slow? So we begin to pay attention to the states of mind that we have. Step nine, we're going to reinforce and begin to really investigate that to see what kind of states of mind that we're in after we're working with the body. Continuing yeah. to gladden the mind by using the kind of language that uh, makes us feel like a winner. Okay, so yeah. now that we've gotten the body and the mind working together, we're going to add the next ingredient, which is the feeling, the Vedana. Now, most of us in our culture are actually taught that we are out of control in our feelings, that we are a victim to our feelings, that when we're angry, the anger has come and we have become the anger. We're stuck. I am angry is the words that we'll use in our language. I am frustrated. I am sad. I am hurt. I am hurt by what you said. This is the kind of language that we have, which means that we do not have any responsibility for the feelings, that the feelings are in charge. And we're a victim to the way that we feel. Now, the underlying most primary feeling of all is the feeling of fear. Why is that true? Is because fear is what keeps us alive. It's the number one primary uh, instinct of self-preservation. And yet, look at how we use that word. Oh, I'm afraid to tell you that you're mother died. Why am I afraid? I'm not afraid, but I use that word often because we have that quality in our language of things that are fearful. And so what we're going to be actually practicing now with our gladdening of the mind is practicing feeling safe and secure. That we've built our whole society. A hundred thousand years ago, we all lived in the jungle and the jungle was fairly dangerous. So we built a town and the town grew into a city. 
but now we still call the city a concrete jungle because it's dangerous. And yet you'd think that we'd be, humans built a city to make it safe. Why are we still not safe? Our whole culture and our whole society has been built upon the fact that we are trying to escape from feeling of fear, and we still feel it a lot. We have been completely as a species unsuccessful in dealing with our number one issue, and that is fear. We don't like to feel afraid, and yet we go around feeling afraid about all kinds of things. We don't even want to open the mail because we're afraid of how high the bill is going to be. <laughs> right? And yet the reality is right here in this moment, in this here now, you're actually safe. Right? Do you feel safe? Yeah. Mm, yeah, I saw the hesitation in there. Right. Because there's okay. always this underlying, uh, there's always this underlying thought of uh, or mortality, right? So that's always kind of at the bottom of it all. Exactly. So that underlying then is what we're meaning by the underlying tendency of being a victim or being a winner right and so one of the things to introduce upon this is the concept of fearlessness because that's not what we're practicing fearlessness is something that we practice in order to deal with our fear in other words courage so the uh, one who is fearless is the guy who puts on all of his armor and storms into battle, all self-confident. But he doesn't feel safe. That's why he's in battle gear. If he felt really safe, then instead of dressing for battle, he'd be cooking dinner for his friend, who he is now thinking he's got to battle with. You get the distinction? Okay, so what we're actually practicing now is safe, secure. To feel comfortable, we have to feel safe and secure. So this is how we're going to start guiding the mind, is by recognizing that right here, right now, we are safe. And we can do that with the understanding of the things that we would consider dangerous are really not here right now, that we're safe because there's nothing dangerous. If we feel danger, that's possibly because if we feel unsafe, that's possibly because we're thinking of something that's dangerous. So we should start thinking about things that are not dangerous or the things that are dangerous that are not here. And so I would say to, to start looking at it from the humorous position of there is no um, boogeyman under the bed. There are no gorillas in the closet. There are no snakes on the floor. There are no tarantula spiders crawling on your arm that you can feel safe and secure because right now there is nothing dangerous. All of the dangers are either in the past or in the future, but right now things are safe. And there's that deep breath. Ah, I could feel safe. So you start with feeling safe and secure. That's the first feelings that we want to deal with because those are the ones that disturb us the most. And with feeling safe and secure, 
We can also working with the body, feeling at rest, feeling comfortable at peace. We can now feel comfortable. But if the body is not in the state of rest, if it's in the state of tension anywhere, if there's neck tension or tension in the forehead or tightness in the chest or whatever like that, we're not really comfortable. So we need to investigate the body. We get the body relaxed enough so that we feel comfortable. So we're using both the body and the mind together to to do a pincer movement, kind of, to work on the body. I mean, excuse me, to work on the feelings. By getting the body relaxed, by getting it knowledgeable, by waking up the body, by controlling the breathing and controlling the relaxation of the body, we now can begin to feel safe, secure, comfortable. And with safe, secure, and comfortable comes satisfaction, which is what we're really looking for. Why is that? Well, if you understand dukkha, dukkha naroda, which we talked about last time, dukkha actually means dissatisfied. We're unsatisfied with things. We don't have to go all the way to the point of suffering, but we do go to the point of being dissatisfied often. We're dissatisfied when we're afraid. We're dissatisfied when we're uncomfortable. Now that we've gotten safe, secure, and comfort going, we can actually begin to talk ourselves into feeling satisfied. This is the gladdening of the mind again. We can feel satisfied by saying everything is okay right now. No worries. Got no place to go and nothing to do. There's nothing dangerous. Ah, and I can just relax and feel satisfied for the moment. Okay. This safe, secure, comfortable satisfaction has a poly word to it. The poly word is sukha. And sukha is exactly opposite of the word dukkha. So you're getting yourself intentionally into a state of sukha, which means that we can actually practice anapanasati to, in this moment, Come out of the first noble truth into the third noble truth. You can do that immediately with a little practice. And the practice itself will bring you into the state of being satisfied. And everything is okay. And everything is fine. Okay. So we're still just practicing the first three steps of of, uh, the Eightfold Noble Path. And that is to remember, to look to investigate and to change, to change the mind, to change the feelings, to change the body, to change the body to make it relax, to change the body to make it last, the breathing last longer. And we slow the breathing down and we become more and more comfortable and more and more relaxed. And these are only the first three steps of the uh, Eightfold Noble Path. The fourth item that we're adding is the feeling of success. We've gotten satisfaction. If we can feel satisfied, the next level to practice is the feeling of success. And we know that we can have success because we've already got safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. We could do that. We're successful at doing that. And so now we add the ingredient of feeling successful. Feeling successful now is not the feeling of a victim. The victim is the one who feels unsuccessful. 
we're going to be feeling like a champion, like a lion now, because we actually feel successful. These words are in the Pali. Sukha, now we're adding success as the word pity. Now, it's wrongly translated as rapture, but the real point is the feeling of a champion, the feeling of can do, the feeling of I've got it, the feeling of success, the feeling of wow, got it. Okay. And so this is the, the four parts of the Eightfold Noble Path that bring together the idea of the mind being unified. The mind is whole. The mind is a samati mind because we do have these five, these four other factors. We're now adding the fifth one. So the fifth one or uh, sama area samati is the outcome of the correct practice of these other four. Once we have that mind is satisfied in samati, that means that now the mind is also noble. It's supra mundane. It's above it all. It's not wallowing in the dukkha anymore. That some student says that everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. The question is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt? Are you going to be clawing your way out of the pile of dirt? Or are you going to be sitting happily on top of your pile of dirt? Sitting happily on top of your pile of dirt, that's super mundane. That's being above the world. And it is also an attitude. The attitude of being the winner. So this is where we're looking for the bright samati mind, this mind that is noble. If it, it is noble, we don't want anything. <clears throat> if we don't want anything, then we're very unlikely to go kill somebody to get it. If we don't want anything, we're very unlikely to go steal it. If we don't want anything, we're very unlikely to go tell lies about it. In other words, our morality is actually now an outcome, not a prereq. Our morality is the results of having a mind that is clear, that's pure, that's noble, that's above it all. And we got that by practicing this Eightfold Noble Path. So when we get there, and we've got it through this practice of Anapanasati, that's when we have unremitting mindfulness. Why? What do we mean by unremitting? It means that it keeps coming back and coming back and coming back when we need it. Doesn't have to be there all the time. A lot of students say, oh, we've got to be on top of things, every thought. No, we only need to recognize it when it is dukkha. When it's not dukkha, we don't have to be working so hard. We can just relax, but we be on guard. And we have to remember to be on guard so that if the hindrance comes up, then we can spring into action. So unremitting mindfulness doesn't mean that it's always there. It means that oh, it'll come up when we need it. <clears throat> then we have unremitting investigation. Notice how the Eightfold Noble Path and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment begin to fit <laughs> together quickly. Okay, the third item on the list then is right energy. 
But here we're talking about it in the sense of our right effort. Once it becomes a skill, it, that right effort is so easy that it just springs into action. Our right effort is so well developed that it just comes automatically along with the waking up, taking a look, and springing right into action of changing it. Okay. And then the fourth item on the list is what is called pitisuka, which is the feelings. In other words, we can have unremitting joy. We can have unremitting good feelings. And then the next item is unremitting relaxation. Followed by then unremitting samadhi, the mind is just together all the time, which means now we're at even more relaxed level of upeka, that everything is okay. Everything is fine. Why? Because we've got the skills to handle it. Understand. So this is how all of that fits together. We're talking about the Eightfold Noble Path and the practice of Anapanasati through the, uh, the Sambo Jhana. And so this is a, a fairly a long discussion of how we do the practice. But the, the immediate way that we do the practice is very, very simple. It's just to wake up, take a look, make a change, and to feel good about it. You keep doing those four things over and over again, and all that other stuff will be added too. Wake up, yeah. see what you're doing, make a change, and congratulate yourself. And we do that on all four levels. With the body, with the feelings, with the mind, and with the mind's object. And hence, that's their 16 stages of Anapanasati. Easy enough. Yes, I understand. Um, just have a couple of practical questions, I guess. So, uh, first one is, uh, you know, simplifying one's life. Is that something that you think is important to, you know, I work a lot. I, I live a very complex sort of social life. I own a business, manage a bunch of people and stuff. So uh, I find like my energy is not as great a lot of the time. So I'm willing to, you know, change things in that, in that, that sense to simplify my life. And that's something simplifying that life. I, I understand that, in fact, that that's part of the path that everybody takes when we recognize that, oh, we have been taught in our society to be successful and to be successful is to be busy. And to be busy makes things all so complex. Yeah. OK, and so the more we want, the more we work. The more we try and try and try to get what we want and all of that kind of stuff. So the answer to that would be that when you become more satisfied, then things become much more simple. And when things in the mind become more simple, then things in life become more simple also. Hmm. And so you're satisfied. An example with me was is that in my youth, I was a major, major traveler. I've been to about 15 different countries, spent months in many of them. I've uh, been all over India. I know places in Thailand the Thai people don't know. I've been all over the place. But guess what? I sit on the porch nowadays. I've been there, done that. I've done that, all that traveling. Now my life is really simple. I got no place to go. 
Right. Yeah, I'm just uh, you're thinking about that. I'm, I'm certainly committed to the practice, um, but I find you know like my work hours are pretty crazy. So uh, I've been thinking hard about you know just uh, shortening my my work schedule. So want to have the energy to do this and, uh-huh. and when you when you say your work hours are crazy. What I hear is is that you use your work hours to make yourself crazy. Yeah, I think it's a place to hide for sure. Right. That it's not the work hours that make you crazy. That's something that you choose to do and you're doing it with your work hours. (laughs) So instead of being a victim to all of those work hours, you now recognize that, no, you're in control of those work hours. And you can do something about it once you are in control. When you're out of control, then you think that you're the victim of through the work hours. To where in fact, you can do anything you want to with any hour that you have, because every hour is in the here now, and it's your choice of what you're going to do. And the further people get progressed upon the path, the more likely they are to have the thought of, well, things are good enough right now, so I don't have to do anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's in fact what we're practicing. We're practicing pra- getting the mind into a state that right now there's no place to go and nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's how we become satisfied. So naturally, a student will start thinking about how can we clean up our whole life, clean up our act, so that our uh, our lifestyle better reflects the Dhamma. That's natural. That in fact is so natural that it's actually part of the Buddhist teachings. In the sense of, uh, and I'm referring to Sutta number 48 now, which he has the seven knowledges that bring one to the state of being very eager, very enthusiastic, and very committed uh, in a very happy way and in to be delighted in the Dhamma as the only thing that you're really interested in. That it becomes consuming of our time. Why? Because it's completely wholesome. And all the other stuff that we used to be doing is not so wholesome. And when we begin to see it, then we begin to pay more and more attention to the Dhamma. One example that the Buddha uses is the example of a cow that has just given a calf and that she is interested in in taking care of the calf. So she's got an eye on her calf, but she still eats. She still moves around, but everywhere she goes, she's got that calf on her mind so that she's not going to let that calf out of her sight. Okay, that's how we get to the point of the Dhamma is when we've got our eye on the Dhamma most of the time as if it were a tender infant that we had to care for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I think uh, I'm kind of getting to that point in which, <laughs> yeah, anything else that, that I do seems to be uh, just a, a dead end. <laughs> yes, it's, it's just a circle, going in circles. Unsatisfying, exactly. Mm-hmm. So we begin to spend more and more of our time in the state of satisfaction and we look for things that are more satisfying. So the books that we read, if we do read, we tend to read books that have to do with the Dhamma. 
when we watch a movie, we tend to see the Dharma in the movie rather than seeing the action that the directors want us to have. We see the reality of the situation. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, so. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's very clear. Thank you. Uh, just have one one other question. Um, all right. Probably have other students wanting to talk to you. Uh, it's also a practical thing in the sense uh, uh, noticing the unwholesome thought and, and then uh, releasing the thought to then replace it with a wholesome thought. So something I've, I've I noticed this week is there seems to be a connection between uh, relaxing, uh, you know, the hindrance arise and, and then if the body gets involved in relaxing and letting go also at a physical level, uh, there seems to be more opportunity to uh, to bring in that wholesome thought. Uh, so I, I just want to see what you think of that. Is that something that makes sense? Yes. I would actually give you a phrase that is very, very useful. Many students say, yeah, this is the best one. The best wholesome thought that they can have would be, oh, I don't have to do that right now. What is that? Whatever they had on their mind, whatever they were thinking about. Arguments that we've had with people, discussions that need to be done, bills that need to be paid, places that need to be gone, all of that. Every one of those kind of thoughts can be answered with, oh, I don't have to do that right now. I can just sit here and relax, just sit and enjoy. I don't have to do that right now. So that would be the phrase that we would leave this with, is, is I don't have to do that right now. Wow, what a relief. <laughs> Imagine how many times that you have written an email in your mind with the computer or, or the email device is nowhere around. Right. <laughs> and we're and we're, you know, trying to communicate, trying to figure out how what we're going to say to somebody. And then we remember, oh. I don't have to think about that right now. I can just sit here and enjoy myself. Yeah, it just seems to, it just goes against our whole conditioning, you know, living so many years that way. It's quite, quite interesting that it seems that ego has this tendency to, who needs a reference point, whatever it is, is creating these anchors. Some place in there has been the issue of exploitation. That um, during the feudal times, and let us say the 13th, 14th centuries in Europe, the, um, the landlords, the owners of the land, wanted to make the people productive. They wanted them to grow more wheat. They wanted the blacksmith to make more blacksmith stuff, right? More horses, more this, more that, and everything. Uh, because the nobles were in competition with each other over who could waste the most resources. So, with that mentality then, when the Industrial Revolution came on, the exploitation remained the same, let's put people to work, pay them hourly wages, or make slaves out of them and make them work. And so work became the basic... Um, uh, what you would call uh, 
coin of the realm. Mm-hmm. That human labor. Are you still there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, but I have lost my uh, the screen, uh, the video. I don't see you. I don't see me or anything like that. Yeah, uh, it was happening to me as well. Okay. All right. Uh, well, I tell you what, we've just been about an hour on on this, and I think that we've gotten someplace with it. So let's go back to that last phrase that we had about, I don't have to do that right now. Knowing that our whole society for the past three, four hundred years has been trying to get you to go to work. We put our kids to work at the age of six in school, getting them ready to be productive so that someone is going to get benefit from that production. Right. And the humans have, look at the production that we've got. We've, everybody's got way too much stuff already. And nobody's happy. And we think, oh, I'll get more stuff and then I'll be happy. The answer is maybe it's not the stuff that's going to make us happy. Maybe that's the skill that we need to develop directly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's, a, a, it's so true. Like we, we think we have to either be doing something or acquiring something to be worthy. But, you know, just by the default of existing, I think there's this inherent sort of sacredness to our being, you know, just from being here right now. We just, we just fail to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Christian. Well, let's finish this call. I'm really glad that you've gotten some value out of it. And um, I hope that this can be incorporated into your practice so that you do get that great benefit from Alakama's practice. Thanks. Just having a pleasant moment. <laughs> Thanks for your help. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right. Well, when will you call again? Uh, Next week. Aiming for Tuesday or Wednesday. Excellent. Well, we'll see you then. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you. Okay. You too. Okay. Bye-bye.